Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is Redemption, the finale of Murder at Mother Mountain. Okay, before we go any further, I want to give the usual spoiler warning. To get the most out of this episode and the entire series, it's really worth checking out on earlier episodes if you haven't already. Today's show follows Ellen's life in Australia. There are a few twists left to run in her life. Indeed, what was one of my favourite ones takes place towards the end of this episode. It's really unexpected. There is a deep dive interview to go with today's episode. That'll be out next week and is on the transportation system. Now, while this is the last episode in the Murder at Mother Mountain series, I have some really great content on the way. So one of the upcoming shows is basically how to trace the murderer in your family. I'll be sitting down with genealogist Martin Costello and he's going to explain how you can find who your ancestors were. I also have an interview with Catherine Dunn, who wrote an enthralling book about the Irish community in London. Then later in the month, I'll have a show on the history of every Irish person's favourite topic of conversation, the weather. Then, as I mentioned last week, I'm also working on this new series on Olive Packin' a Man, one of Ireland's last Anglo-Irish aristocrats. That's a really enthralling story. Now, at this point, I often mention Patreon and Acast Plus, but this week, all I want you to do is to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. This makes sure you won't miss an episode coming down the line. And if you have enjoyed Murder at Mother Mountain, share the series with your pals on WhatsApp, Telegram, Facebook, Twitter, or whatever your social of choice is. It doesn't take long, but you'd be surprised at the impact you can have. Your friends always trust you over any Google or Facebook ad. So if you recommend the show, you'll help spread the word in a way I can't. Additional research on this series was from Liam Costello. Narrations are from Aidan Crone, Therese Murray. The theme tune is The Banks of Ceylon, performed by Nell Necronin and played on the pipes by Liam Costello. Of my ramblings and drawings, I... Through June 1847, 
as Antarctic winds howled up the Derwent estuary, Ellen Berkeley did what she could to protect herself from the plunging temperatures. Still serving out her six-month probation period on board the Anson, an old convict ship transformed into a floating prison, she was adjusting to the Australian climate where seasons were reversed from what she had been used to in Ireland. As disorientating as winter in June could be for someone born in the Northern Hemisphere, the arrival of cold weather also triggered memories of home for Ellen Berkery. From the Anson, she could see the snow lying on the upper reaches of the distant Mount Wellington, which immediately recalled memories of her childhood home on Keeper Hill in Tipperary, which was often also crowned with winter snows. However, while she pined for home and memories of better times, Ellen couldn't fully appreciate yet that she was, in her own way, lucky. The famine by 1847 had reduced her native Tipperary to an unimaginable condition. The scale of the catastrophe unfolding was perhaps best captured in one single death that year. That of a Protestant clergyman, Alexander Hoops, who lived in Borisalee in County Tipperary. Over the previous year, Hoops had set aside his religious differences and worked with the local Catholic priests to help the poor in the local parish. Faced with starvation and death, the 67-year-old Hoops had become depressed by the hopeless situation. He would eventually reach breaking point in August 1847. After his usual Sunday service on August the 15th, the clergyman left the church and returned home. After two hours, he made his excuses to his family and once alone, he loaded a pistol and took his own life. His inquest, held a few days later, was unambiguous about what had provoked the rector into this course of action. The Tipperary Free Press reported, The reverend gentleman spent and lost his life in the cause of the poor, amongst whom his lot was cast. He died, broken down in health and spirits, in mind and body, by the harassing scenes which he witnessed and partook in, among the starving poor, on whose behalf his warmest sympathies were animated. The contrast with Ellen Berkery's life on the Derwent River in Van Diemen's Land at this point was stark. While the death of Alexander Hoops captured the extent of what was happening at home in Tipperary, she could for the first time in over a year be optimistic about the future. In Van Diemen's Land, the penal system was structured around incentives and the first major reward for good behaviour now approached for Ellen. She had arrived in Van Diemen's Land in March 1847 and had been transferred to the Janssen. Nearly six months had passed and in late August of that year, the women who had been well behaved were about to be moved on to the next phase of their incarceration when they were granted what was called a probation pass. This would allow them to be hired by the authorities to free settlers in Van Diemen's Land. It was a step towards complete freedom and in the short term it also got them off the Anson. For the first time in nine months the women could look forward to sleeping on dry land. With this in mind, the excitement began to grow from August the 28th, 1847, when Ellen and 106 other women were granted their much-desired probation passes. In a matter of days, settlers would arrive on the Anson, and with a bit of luck, Ellen would be hired by a decent family, and life might begin to regain some sense of normality. But as Ellen was starting to understand, luck 
was in short supply in the Victorian penal system and in Van Diemen's land in particular. On the 31st of August 1847, an advert was placed in local newspapers in Van Diemen's land announcing that Ellen and 106 other women who had arrived on the convict ship the Arabian were now available for hire. Interested local settlers were encouraged to come to the Anson the following day and hire the women. While this offered Ellen a potential change in her surroundings, she would still remain ultimately powerless to influence and control her life. If she was hired out, she would be paid for her work, but the contract that existed was between the government and her employer, and Ellen would have few rights to speak of. Nevertheless, the hiring fair of a kind went ahead on September the 1st. However, as Ellen looked around at the other women that morning, she may have started to realise that given she was nearly twice the age of most of the other convicts, she was at a distinct disadvantage. Employers would unquestionably favour the younger women. However, as the day wore on, it was clear that age would not be a determining factor. Indeed, the hopes of Ellen and many of the other women of finding a decent placement were soon dashed. By 1847, a deep recession was setting in in Van Diemen's land and given around 25,000 convicts were already on the island, there was very little demand for convict labour, so few of the women appeared to have been hired. They were still moved from the Anson to another institution on the island, the Brickfields Hiring Depot. However, the name Hiring Depot was something of a misnomer, given very little hiring would take place from this institution in the coming years. Indeed, 1847 would soon give way to 1848. A hot summer came and went, and again the Antarctic winds would sweep up the Derwent River, ushering in another winter, and Ellen remained stranded in the depot, with no hope of finding a placement. Ultimately, Ellen and many of the women would spend well over two years in this hiring depot. By 1850, some of the women who had arrived with Ellen, but had received shorter sentences than she did, were already moving on to the next phase of their punishment. This saw them receive what was called a ticket of leave. They were still convicts, but under this part of their sentence, they were afforded greater freedoms than they had been on the probation pass. They could now seek work for themselves, However, they would have to remain in a specified area, live in a specified house and report to the authorities on a regular basis. This was not freedom by any means. Their lives were strictly controlled and Van Diemen's Land has often been described as a giant open-air prison for these women. The convicts could expect and received very little sympathy or solidarity from the free settlers on the island who viewed them with suspicion and considered them a stain on their society. Even minor infractions of the law for women with tickets of leave were severely punished. One of the women who had been sent to Van Diemen's Land with Ellen, Mary Kenny from Limerick, had received a seven-year sentence and by May of 1850 she had received a ticket of leave. Over a year and a half later she had gone absent without leave and when the authorities found Mary she was in bed with a man. For this infraction the 58-year-old was sentenced to three months hard labour. Meanwhile, for Ellen Berkery, she remained in the probation system, unhired. Finally, in the spring of 1852, as she was beginning to give up all hope that she would ever find a placement, she was moved from the Brickfield hiring depot to the house of a new employer, a Mr Cook. Now, this move was fraught with risk. 
While employers could send women back if they were not satisfied, the convict women themselves, like Ellen here, had no real rights. Abuse was commonplace, and while there was a mechanism for appealing to the authorities, the fact that most in power viewed the convicts as morally bankrupt people, the chances of being believed were slim. There was great risk in reporting an employer, as this could potentially leave the women in an even worse position that they would have to return to the house of their abuser after trying to report them. Ultimately, Ellen would not remain in the cook house where she had been placed very long. She was recorded as being in the house on the 27th of April, 1852, and on the very same day, she went absent without leave. No reason or explanation was given, but after six years of incarceration, with years left to run on her sentence, before she could gain her full freedom, the allure of a few hours to herself may have been reason enough for Ellen to abscond. Inevitably, she was captured. The fact that she was extremely tall, with a facial tattoo, meant Ellen was a very distinctive-looking woman, and she was sentenced to three months' hard labour in the Cascades female prison, after which she was returned to the Brickfields hiring depot in August 1852. This would, however, be the final time Ellen would break the law in her life. Indeed, things would begin to change for the better in 1853. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. After being returned to the Brickfields hiring depot in late 1852, Ellen would not have to remain there too long on this occasion. She was hired out to another household in February 1853. She didn't leave this household. Indeed, by this stage, Ellen seems to have been looking forward to a new life after her sentence would have been served and she had been granted her freedom, even if it was years away. She had met a man called John Alfred Hoare. Hoare was also a convict, originally from South Down in Cornwall, England. He had been tried in Plymouth in 1845 and sentenced to seven years for stealing mahogany. He had been given a ticket of leave in 1850 and he too had experienced the harsh regime for convicts of all types in Van Diemen's Land. In May 1852 he had told someone he was not a convict on a ticket of leave but in fact a free settler. 
This was judged to be a grave sin in the minds of many at the time because it blurred the lines between convicts and settlers and it resulted in John getting six months hard labour in chains. Ellen and John must have met shortly after he had finished this sentence as they applied for permission to marry on February 2nd, 1853. Their convict experience gave the two a shared understanding of the world. They both knew that they would be looked down on and viewed with suspicion and disdain by wider society for the rest of their lives. The fact that they were both convicts perhaps helped them overcome and understand their complex emotional histories. John Alfred Hoare, for example, had been married with two children when he had been transported. He had not left his family by choice and the tattoo of a woman and two children on his lower arm would be a constant reminder to Ellen of this other woman, a world away, that she could never compete with. What John knew of Ellen's own marital history, her love affair with William Walsh and her life back in Turin Brine is unknown, but perhaps he could understand if her emotions were hesitant or reserved at times. Ellen, for her part, may have kept some details about her life secret from John. A few days after the two applied for permission to marry, Ellen, according to her prison records, turned 45, the same age as her new husband. However, the truth was Ellen was now 50. She had shaved five years off her age, back when she had been arrested in Tipperary in 1846. On February 11th, 1853, Ellen married for the second time and her name changed yet again. While the prison administration continued to record her as Ellen Berkeley, she would, when given the chance, now call herself Ellen Hoare, or sometimes Ellen Oro, an indication of how the name was pronounced at the time. Over the following months of 1853, Ellen was employed in three other houses in Van Diemen's Land, although she doesn't appear to have lasted very long in any individual placement. There's no evidence she ever did anything wrong, but perhaps a woman who had, up until seven years previously, run her own house, struggled to adapt to a life where she now had to serve someone else. In the following years, all Ellen could do was wait until she was granted her freedom. She and John Alfred Hoare would live under the watchful eye of the convict department in Van Diemen's Land until they were both granted their freedom and could finally leave the island. This proved to be a slow process. In December 1853, John Alfred Hoare, who had secured his ticket of leave years earlier, was freed, but Ellen still had years to run on her sentence. As time passed by, a bitterness must have crept in for the couple, who were now trapped in a penal system that everyone agreed was no longer fit for purpose. Indeed, on April 21st, 1853, the convict ship, the Duchess of Northumberland, dropped anchor on the Derwent carrying female convicts while the following month another ship, the St Vincent, arrived with male convicts. These were the final convict ships to arrive as the British government finally relented to the growing demands to scrap transportation to Van Diemen's Land forever. In August 1853, major celebrations were held across the island to mark both the 50th anniversary of European conquest and the end of transportation. Ellen and John presumably found it hard to be remotely enthused by this, however. These celebrations were not to mark freedom for people like them, but rather a celebration by free settlers to mark the fact that people like Ellen and John would no longer be arriving on the island. If anything, it underscored that once Ellen was given her freedom, they would have to immediately leave the island. They would never be accepted or welcomed there. In the meantime, Ellen like the remaining transportees, remained trapped 
in this system that had already been consigned to history. Finally, almost 10 years to the day after the Arabian, the convict ship, had weighed anchor and sailed from Dublin Bay, the decision was taken on the 25th of November 1856 to make Ellen a free woman. At the age of 53, but claiming to be 48, Ellen could reflect back on what had been a harrowing decade in the knowledge that she was finally closing this chapter. Perhaps bitter about being transported, the alternative, a decade in Nina Jail, was arguably worse. The regime in that institution, shaped by silence and separation, could after all have driven her insane. She was emerging from transportation, with her mind at least intact, and she had managed to forge the foundations of a new life with John Elford Hoare. Furthermore, as the impact of the Great Hunger was now understood, she realised what she had escaped. In 1856, newspapers across Australia carried detailed reports of the 1851 census, which revealed the true extent of the catastrophe the Great Famine had been. The Irish population had fallen from at least 8.1 million to 6.6 million in around five years. Transportation may have destroyed the life Ellen had once known, but it had shielded her from the famine. During the long years when they had been waiting for Ellen's freedom, the pair had the chance to plan a future and it was little surprise that they decided to leave Tasmania. They had few positive memories of the island, one where they were constantly under surveillance from the authorities and free settlers alike. Around this time, large tracts of cheap land were also becoming available in South Australia in a new colony, Victoria, and it was here the two hoped that they could forge a new life. However, as Ellen knew only too well by this point, history is never a straight line with each year getting better than the last. The reality is it's far more complicated. She would soon learn the uncomfortable truth that someone had been living on the land she hoped to live on now and that ghosts from her past would return to haunt her. Of my ramblings and rovings, I Following Ellen's freedom, she and her husband, John Hoare, crossed the Tasman Sea before travelling northeast to Gippsland in Victoria, where they would settle near to the town of Rosedale. While the climate in Tasmania had at times been more similar to that of Ireland, the Gippsland climate was far drier and hotter than Tipperary. The vast, unending landscape was also very different as well, as it disappeared onto the horizon and was more reminiscent of an ocean than the rolling green hills back in Turin Bryan. The communities Ellen found in Gippsland, however, had echoes of home. On the surface, Ellen was a complete stranger in a strange land. Her life in Ireland had been shaped by customs and traditions rooted in history over previous centuries and landmarks such as Mother Mountain, which had a spiritual significance that stretched deep into the past. In Gippsland, Ellen, or indeed any of the other white settlers, had no historical connection to the region whatsoever. While white people were only in the region two decades, they were, if anything, trying to hide the short but extremely bloody history in the region. However, even more recent arrivals like Ellen must have wondered where the Aboriginal peoples who had clearly once lived in Gippsland had gone. The answer to this question, one she had probably suspected, presumably emerged when some settlers who had been in Gippsland in the early days got drunk and revealed a story that for Ellen at least had echoes of home. Gippsland had been settled from the early 1840s and the founding father of the region, a Scot, Angus Macmillan, would later be dubbed the Butcher of Gippsland for the massacres he and others perpetrated against the Aboriginal peoples as they dispossessed them of their lands. 
Over a decade before Ellen had arrived, the plight of the Aboriginal peoples was already dire, with one English settler candidly writing in 1846. The blacks are very quiet here now, poor wretches. No wild beast of the forest was ever hunted down with such unsparing perseverance as they are. Men, women and children are shot wherever they can be met. Ellen reached Gippsland perhaps ten years later, when the extreme violence had come to an end and a new process had begun, that of forging a white colonial society, which she was now part of. This sought to erase the memory of the previous inhabitants. This echoed the same process that had seen Ellen's own family marginalised in Tipperary by Cromwellian settlers back in the 17th century. The major difference, of course, now was that while Ellen's ancestors had been the marginalised people, she was the one now living on the stolen lands of a marginalised people in Gippsland. However, she almost certainly did not see events in these terms. If she was like most settlers, she would have had little sympathy for and was possibly overtly hostile to the Aboriginal people of the region. However, while Ellen and John Hoare were unquestionably part of the new settler society when it came to relations with the local Aboriginal communities, the two would also have been looked down on by other settlers because they were ex-convicts. Despite the fact that convicts and their descendants formed a considerable percentage of the white population, it was still considered a source of deep shame and embarrassment. While many former convicts tried to hide their past, this would have been extremely difficult, if not impossible, for Ellen and John. The tattooed dots on Ellen's face unquestionably marked her out as a former convict. In spite of this, she and John appear to have enjoyed a certain degree of success in Gippsland. In 1866, John was able to give Ellen 10 acres of land, which she in turn rented out to a tenant. Physical work was becoming increasingly difficult, if not impossible, for Ellen. Despite claiming she was only in her late 50s, she was already in her 60s, and given the life she had led, time was finally starting to take a toll on Ellen. Ellen lived to see her 70th birthday in 1873. By then, the surrounding region was no longer a frontier. The Aboriginal communities were almost completely marginalised, their way of life destroyed. The large town in the area, Sale, now had an appearance of a European settlement, if a somewhat remote one. A visitor in the early years of the 1870s wrote, Sale has all the appearances of a flourishing township. The streets are wide and the shops are plentiful, but fruit is scarce. A few stale cherries being all I could obtain from the principal shop in the place. In late 1875, Ellen fell seriously ill. Given she made a will, it seems clear that she knew her time was now running out. For a woman who had lived three lives, that of Ellen Kennedy on Keeper Hill, Ellen Berkery of Toreen Bryan and Ellen Hoare of Rosedale, the memories of her life in her final days must have been a complex competition between these various existences. Where did her resting mind go in those final days? Was it to Keeper Hill and Mother Mountain back in Tipperary, the world of her youth, or was it the balmy, warm climate she had grown old in? In January 1876, at the age of 73, Ellen finally took her last breath, ending a remarkably complex and at times dark life. However, there was one chapter left in Ellen's story, and this woman, who had lived a controversial life, was able to create one final controversy from beyond the grave. This controversy would, in fact, answer the question of where her mind had wandered in those final days before she died. In the weeks after her death, Ellen's property passed into the hands of her husband, John, as might be expected. 
However, a few months later, this move was challenged in the courts. In her final weeks, Ellen had written a will, and in this will she had left the ten acres of land she owned, not to her husband John, but instead to the man who had rented it from her as a long-term tenant. This long-term tenant now demanded what he said was rightfully his in accordance with Ellen's will. John Hoare must always have harboured fears that something like this would happen from the day that this man had turned up in Rosedale. After prolonged legal wranglings, Ellen's will was finally upheld and the ten acres of land was rewarded to the tenant who was named in the local press as none other than Jeremiah Berkery, Ellen's son from her first marriage. The same Jeremiah Berkery whose testimony had seen Ellen convicted back in Nina in 1846. How he had found his mother remains a mystery. Jeremiah had joined the British Army and at some point emigrated to Australia. Perhaps after his discharge, he followed the trail of settlers into eastern Australia during the gold rush and encountered his mother Ellen by accident on the street in Rosedale. Or perhaps it was after years of searching. Ellen had in the end lived long enough to meet her grandchild, although there must have been a degree of uneasiness when Jeremiah introduced her to his son, named after Jeremiah's father and Ellen's late husband, Daniel. Jeremiah would go on to have two more children, William and Mary. While Ellen and her son managed to come to some form of peace after everything they had been through, what happened to the other Berkeley children is unclear. They appear to have all left Touring Brian during or immediately after the famine. There is no trace of the eldest daughter, Ellen, whose evidence had been so instrumental in the trial against her mother. All we are left with is questions regarding her and the fate of her other siblings. Were they evicted after Ellen's conviction? Was their fate recorded in the now lost records of Nina Workhouse? Perhaps they were able to scrape enough money to emigrate and their descendants are now living in Boston or New York. The only Berkeley that left a solid trace is Jeremiah. He would live in Sale, Victoria until 1910 when he finally died. His wife Mary Ellen died 11 years later and their eldest son, Daniel died in 1924. The last person to have ever met Ellen was his son, William Berkery, who died in 1954. Although he only ever met his grandmother Ellen as an infant, given she died the year following his birth, he undoubtedly knew something of this woman, her dark secrets, the distant and strange world she had grown up in, and a place called Mother Mountain. Before I sign off, I want to say thank you to everyone who helped with this series. Liam, who helped with the research, Aidan and Therese, whose narrations were amazing, and Nell, whose performance of The Banks of Ceylon really provided such a fitting soundtrack. Finally, before I sign off, I just want to thank the supporters of the show again. Without them, I simply couldn't have made this series. Until next time, Sloan. Enchanting with gay lassies in juvenile bloom. Promenading by the banks of that river as it flows through the town of Macroom. I, being airy and fond of recreation, by this river I chanced far to roam, until wearied of my ramblings and roamings, 
I sat myself down by grove. I sat for a while meditating until Sol his bright rays had withdrawn. When a damsel of queenly appearance strolled down by the banks of Salon. I stood with great joy and emotion on perceiving that angelic fair whose apparent the greatest profusion was bespangled with jewels so rare. Her tall and her majestic figure to describe it I will not presume for by that river as it flows through the town of Macroom. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 